You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to John 13. John 13, we're going to be primarily in verses 31 through 35 today there in John 13. So John 13, 31 through 35, we are continuing in this series of the one another's of Scripture. And today we're going to talk about love one another. Now, here's the issue with this one. And in in my blog post this coming Tuesday, I'll reference these Scripture references and talk a little bit more in depth about it. But the command to love one another or the command of one of the other one another's, for example, Galatians 5.13 talks about us serving one another, but it's prefaced through love serve one another. So there are some of those one another commands that have love tagged onto that. Those commands total 17 times in the New Testament. More than any other one another saying in the New Testament, love one another is the main one. It is the one who reigns supreme. And so we're going to talk today about what it means to love one another. And when you mention that, sometimes the question arises, well, aren't we supposed to love everyone? And certainly the Bible teaches that. When Jesus is asked, uh, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we connect those two pieces of, of Scripture where we learn that the neighbor is not always who we might have thought was the neighbor. And so by telling that story, Jesus expands what it means to love our neighbor. And so there is an emphasis to be sure through Scripture that we are to love all people. But there is a special emphasis in the New Testament on loving one another. And here's why I believe that's that's the case. The first thing is this. If we can't get love one another right, you can probably forget about doing any of the other one another's. If we don't love one another well, we're not going to serve one another well. We're not going to bear with one another. We're not going to clothe ourselves in humility to one another. We're not going to do all the things we've talked about through the last few weeks of all these different sayings. If if loving one another is not done and not done well, we're probably going to miss those. Loving one another is really the hinge on which all the rest of them pivot. And the second piece of it is this, if we don't love one another well, you can probably be certain we won't love those outside of our faith well. If we don't love brothers and sisters in Christ who we're going to be all in eternity together, (laughs) and we don't do that well this side of heaven, then we probably don't stand a chance at loving those who are outside of our faith today. And so that's why I believe that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are so many references in the New Testament to this idea of loving one another. And so that's where we're going to camp today. John 13, 31 through 35, if you want to follow along with me. When he had gone out, that he, of course, is Judas. Judas is leaving the meal to go and fulfill the betrayment of Jesus. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We're going to primarily deal with verses 34 and 35 out of this passage today for our three points of understanding. And the first point for us is this. What we have here is, by Jesus, a direct command. Look again at the very first part of verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. When we hear the word commandment, most likely our minds probably go to the Ten Commandments or perhaps the New Testament passage that I just referenced where Jesus is asked which is the greatest commandment and he responds in that way. Simply defined, a commandment is an authoritative direction or instruction of which obedience is expected. So a command or commandment can be from a parent to a child. It can be from an employer to an employee. It can be in lots of different ways in our earthly living, but it's based on one person having authority over another and directing or instructing them to do something. And with it, there is an expected obedience. And so I think what we tend to think about maybe when we think about the word commandment or these commandments that are in the scriptures is we kind of look at them in this way, that they're kind of a means to an end, that if we follow the commandments, then we will have relationship. The reality is the commandments that are throughout the scriptures are built upon relationships that are already existing because of who God and Jesus are. Let me, let me give you an example. In Exodus chapter 20, right before the Ten Commandments are given, this is what it reads, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he goes on to give the Ten Commandments, and he goes on to give uh, through chapters 21, 22, and 23 in Exodus these various um, civil and social laws of community living. But understand, all of that is based on verse 2 in chapter 20, where God says, I am the Lord your God. Because what he's saying there to Israel is, I've established a relationship with you. And that relationship is one of authority. Why? Because he brought them out of slavery. He brought them out of Egypt. He's the one who assumes the authority in that relationship because he's the one who has taken the authority and taken the action. And so the commandments that are then listed are not, as we might think, well, if I do the 10, then that means I get to be with God. It's you do the 10 because God has claimed you, O Israel, God has taken you. He has put you in a relationship with himself. So in a very similar way, Jesus establishes his authority, first then with the disciples and then concurrently all throughout history with all who have trusted in him. And he is the one who has authority over us to give us a new commandment because he indeed has also rescued us as well. He may not have rescued us from a physical location, but he has rescued us from the penalty of sin. He has rescued us from the power of sin. He has given us new life, and so he has the authority to declare a new commandment. 
In, in those opening verses, 31 32, where he's talking about God being glorified in him and God glorifying him at once, all of that language there is about authority. It's all about authority that God has now being passed on to Jesus in anticipation of the cross and resurrection. He is claiming that for himself the authority that would be God's on the basis of what would happen in the next few hours of his day. And so Jesus is able to establish a new commandment, one that was original with his teaching. And it's based on the relationship he already had with the disciples. Consequently for us, because we are in Christ, those of us who have faith and trust in him, who have given ourselves over to him, the command to love one another does not come to us as something that we use as a stepping stone of our faith, but it becomes evidence of our faith. It's not something that we, we use as a check mark kind of a thing to say, well, if I do this, that means I'm going to be in a, a greater situation or a greater position with Jesus. It's because we are already in the position we are in with him that he commands us then to love one another. We love one another because we are in Christ, not in an effort to gain Christ. Because the reality of it is, without already being in Christ, there's no chance for us to love one another in this fashion. So we have a direct command. He then gives a direct example. Look at the second half of verse 34. I'll read the entirety of it just for context. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The love that the disciples were to have for one another the love that the Christian brother and sister today in 2022 for one another is not just an ordinary love. It is a love that is supposed to mimic the way Jesus loved the disciples. And when I was thinking through this this week and preparing, uh, you know, it, it occurred to me, ne nowhere in the Gospels do we see Jesus say, I love you, right? But what we see in the Gospels is the demonstration of Jesus' love for the disciples. How did he demonstrate his love for them? He, he chose them. He intentionally entered into a relationship with them. And just as God intentionally entered a relationship with Israel, going all the way back to Deuteronomy, God tells Israel, I did not choose you as a nation because you were the biggest or you are the most powerful or you were the strongest in number. I chose you because actually just the opposite, you were the weakest and the fewest. And so I chose you to make you my people so that I would be made great. In the same way, Jesus chooses disciples, not who are people who, have been, who would have been the top tier of social society in that day, not people who would have been admired, but instead he chooses fishermen and tax collectors, people who would have been on the outside looking in. And Jesus does the same choosing of the 12 in the same way that God chooses Israel. He chooses those who were outside of the understanding of society, and he does so to make himself great. He chose them. He entered into a relationship with them. He instructed them in the ways of the Lord and the kingdom of God. He calmed them. The one that probably comes to mind the quickest with that is when they're in the storm and they're terrified in the boat and Jesus comes and calms the waves, calms them. He protected them. Who did he protect them from? He protected them from the Pharisees. 
He protected him from the religious leaders of the day that, that were out to disrupt everything that he and the disciples were doing. He forgave them. Again, we don't necessarily see Jesus say to any of them, I forgive you. But if you think about, for example, Peter's reinstatement at the end of the Gospel of John here, certainly that is a reinstatement of forgiveness. There, there are more things we could extract from the Gospels, but the point is this. Jesus loved them because he loved in action. It wasn't just a mere word play for him. He loved them in action. And so what we begin to understand is when he says, love one another as I have loved you, and we see how he has loved the disciples, what we begin to see is that type of love requires relationship. And that type of love requires intentionality. It requires being present with one another. For you and I to love one another in the ways that he loved the disciples of forgiving and instructing and caring for and all the different things of calming and bringing peace. We have to be together. We have to be in each other's lives. And here's the great lie, the great deception of modern church. You ready for it? That somehow we can accomplish this in an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. That somehow, as long as we just come on Sunday mornings and we hit Sunday school and we hit worship and then we let the world have the rest of the week, that somehow we're really truly loving one another. That's a lie. You, you, can, you can fulfill your spiritual checklist for the week if you want to in thinking in that terms, but there's no way any of us can really truly love one another in the way that Jesus loved the disciples by just hanging out on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half. So it means we have to be intentional. It means that when there are other opportunities through our week, we take them. Prayer groups, other Bible study groups, uh, worship events, service events. It means that sometimes just of our own personal time, we, we, yes, take some time for yourselves. You need to do that every now and then. But you also intentionally engage the body of Christ that you worship with on Sunday morning. And have some people over for dinner or meet some people for coffee or do some things with intentionality. Because the way Jesus loved the disciples and the way he instructs them to love one another and then by virtue us to love one another, all of this is modeled on what's called the incarnation. All this is modeled on what we're getting ready to celebrate in the next few weeks, the birth of Christ. Because it's for God so loved the world, he gave, he sent his only son. He did not merely just say to them, okay, you all need to love one another in this fashion. He did not merely write some new tablets. He sent Christ. Christ willingly came to live on this earth, and he intentionally did the things that he did so that he could demonstrate for us what it means to love one another in this way. That's why one of the words that we call Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And if we are to love one another, it has to be us with us. And it has to be intentional. Bob Goff has a book titled Love Does. And he makes this statement. The world will make you think love can be picked up at a garage sale or enveloped in a Hallmark card. But the kind of love that God created and demonstrated is a costly one because it involves sacrifice and presence. The kind of love Jesus is calling the disciples to and then forevermore all who would be faithful and have their faith and trust in him is a love that is a costly one. It is a sacrificial love. It is an intentional love. 
And so we have a direct command, we have a direct example, and then verse 35, we have a direct result of all this. Look at what Jesus says. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, loving one another, the world will know you are my disciples. Never has a more powerful sentence been uttered. Because think about all the ways that we want to pretend that people know we belong to Jesus. Think about all the, the, the monikers. Think about all the, the names. Think about all the different attributes that we say. Well, well, that person's a Christian, or he, she's a Christian, or I'm a Christian. And Jesus says, this is a defining mark right here. The world will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. This is not just a trivial statement by Jesus. If you've got your Bibles open, look in John 15, just a page or two to your right. And John 15 is the, the vine passage where Jesus talks about abiding in him and bearing fruit and so forth. And pick up with me at verse 12 through verse 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends, for all that I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide. Whatever you ask the Father in his, my name, he may give to you. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. Two more times there, just a, a page later, Jesus hits it again twice. And again, it's not a suggestion. Jesus doesn't put it forth as a, as a church growth strategy. Your church will grow if you love one another. Now, I think it will. <laughs> But he puts it forth as a command. If you say you belong to him, then you are expected, I am expected to do this. And love takes center stage in John's gospel from here on out. The, the word that is translated love, the Greek word agape or, or agapeo, depending on the verb tense or noun tense. Or, that word is used in John's gospel from chapter 1 through chapter 12 eight times. But from chapter 13 to the end of John's gospel, it's used 35 times. This command by Jesus that comes to us in John 13 signals a new direction for those who are in Christ, for those who love God, for those who want to be called God's people. And it all centers around love. And this is the love of God that is demonstrated to mankind through Jesus Christ. This kind of love is what is known as benevolent love, meaning it's love that's given not for the purpose of the person who's giving it, but for the purpose of the person who's receiving it. In other words, it's selfless love. It's unconditional love. It does not, does not place demands or restrictions on love. Another way this word can be understood is it's a love of goodwill. When the Bible talks about goodwill, what that means is it's having a concern for someone that overrides any feeling of resentment or retaliation or being offended. When the angels show up to the shepherds and they say, peace on earth, goodwill toward all men, 
That is God saying, I hold no offense against me, against you. I do not seek to retaliate against you. I do not seek to to have resentment against you. Instead, I am sending my son as a demonstration of love and goodwill. It's a love of sacrifice. It's a love of faithfulness. But most importantly, this kind of love is always proven by how it's demonstrated. It's not just lip service. It's not just saying to someone that you love them. Although that's a nice thing to say. People need to hear it. But it's an action that takes place. And Jesus says in verse 35, this is how the world will know you're my disciples. Some of you know that I began my ministry career with Hope Community Church um, towards the Franklin County, Anderson County line. And if you've ever driven by that church, you know that church doesn't look like a church. Um, it's a big, large metal building, and it's got a bunch of rocking chairs out on the porches. And uh, for a long time, we were known as the Cracker Barrel Church, which I didn't think was bad um, until people wanted sausage and gravy and that kind of stuff, and we didn't have it. But um, I remember when we were in that, that planning stage, because we met as a church for eight years in a middle school gymnasium before we finally got land in a building. And I remember we were in that planning stage, and we were, we were having um, um, people coming in and do the drawings of what the building was going to look like. And we had someone ask, and I'm, and I'm not saying this in a negative way to them. It was just the way their mind was thinking. They said, someone said, there's no steeple. How will they know we're at church? And as staff, our response was that always, they'll know we're a church by how we live. They'll, they'll know we follow Jesus because of what we do, what we say, and who we are. This statement by Jesus is not just um, an assignment that we check off or that we say, okay, I did that, I don't have to do that again. Jesus says, point blank, this is a distinctive identifying trait of people who claim to be disciples of him. And if we think about this point in in history when he's saying this, think about how people were uh, identified as people of God previous to this. By the way they dressed or the way they didn't dress, by the way they ate or the foods they ate or foods they didn't eat, by temple attendance, by temple worship, by honoring certain days and festivals over, over other certain days and other festivals. Like the list just goes on and on and on. And Jesus comes in and just narrows it down to this. He, he doesn't continue any of that. That you'll know your God, people will know you belong to God if you do all these things. He limits it down to one crucial identifying trait. The world will know you're his disciples if you love one another. I hope you grasp how powerful this is. And I hope you grasp that what this means is we have to then allow Jesus' words and the remainder of the Bible to help us understand what it means to be Christian. Don't let the world define it for you. I've been asked more than a few times in my pastoral ministry, why aren't you more political? And I, say, I always say this as a response to that. So well, number one, God didn't call me to be a political pundit. He called me to be a preacher and a proclaimer. Number two, just because I don't talk about it much doesn't mean I'm not or I'm not keeping up on it. It just means I'm not talking about it much. But number three is, and we've seen this now really ramp up over the last 10 to 12, 14 years. 
that as an aspect of the world saying this is what defines a Christian, politics has now taken center stage as one of those things that the world says you are a Christian if you are either on this side or that side or vote this way or vote that way. There was a study released last week by Lifeway that 50% of people who identify as evangelicals, which, again, an evangelical is a person who has their faith and trust in Christ, uh, trusting the kingdom of God, believing the Bible to be true. Those are the definitions of an evangelical. 50% of evangelicals in America right now say the crucial thing for them choosing a church is whether or not everybody else in the church has the same political leanings that they do. 50%. But Jesus says love. <laughs> and some people say, well, you know, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't know America was going to exist then or we'd have these opportunities. He didn't? That, that's not a theological road we want to go down. Jesus actually says in spite of everything, whether you're in an oppressed regime or whether you have voting rights, whether you are under a dictator or whether you have a democracy, whatever you are living in, the world will know you're a Christian by your love for one another. So we don't let the world dictate what it means to be Christian. We don't let the religious of our day dictate what it means to be Christian. Because not everyone who's religious knows Jesus. In John chapter 4, in the gospel of John here, uh, Jesus meets up with that Samaritan woman. And as part of their conversation, she says to him, our forefathers said that we needed to worship on that mountain, but you all say you need to worship on that mountain. And the story behind that is this. I don't know if you know this or not. If you didn't, you can consider this extra. The Samaritans were, of course, half Jew, half Gentile. So they had a lot of Jewish influence in their religion. They had their own separate Torah first five books of the Bible, and their own separate set of the Ten Commandments. And to the Ten Commandments, the Samaritan religious leaders had said, the Eleventh Commandment is, that's where you worship, not anywhere else. So when she asks that of Jesus, it's not just this trivial thing. She's really trying to define. Religious people are telling me, that's the only place we can worship. To put it in our vernacular, religious people were trying to tell her, that's the only way you can be Christian. We don't let the world define it. We don't let religious people define it. We let Jesus define it. And what Jesus says collectively is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and love one another. In John's letter late in the New Testament in 1 John, he takes this teaching of Jesus and he really begins to kind of double down on it. I'm going to read a couple of passages from 1 John, beginning right now in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. He writes, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Same chapter, 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. 
And then in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, and, and if you're not familiar with 1 John, I would encourage you to read this book in its entirety this week. It's five chapters, but all throughout these five chapters is this issue of what it means to love one another. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Like, you think Jesus' statement was harsh? (laughs) John takes it and expands it and really digs down into it. That a Christian brother or sister cannot claim to love and know God and yet have hate reside in their heart towards another Christian brother or sister. G. Campbell Morgan, a pastor in Britain in the late 1900s, made this statement. The measure in which Christian people fail to love or fail in love to each other is the measure in which the world does not believe in them or their Christianity. It is the final test of discipleship. This is his commentary on John 13. The measure in which we fail to love one another is the measure in which the world does not believe in us or our Christianity. Morgan says it's the final test of discipleship. Everything hinges on love. Love of God. Love of your neighbor. Love of one another. I want to end this way today. 1 Corinthians 13 is a passage that's often used at weddings, and it's okay if it's used at weddings. I'm not saying it's not okay if it's used at weddings, but it is not a wedding passage. 1 Corinthians 13 is this this teaching from Paul on Christian love right in the middle of what it means to have orderly worship and the expression of spiritual gifts within the church. That's what starts in 1 Corinthians 11. What does it mean to have orderly worship? What does it mean to to observe the Lord's Supper in the right way? What does it mean to to have our spiritual gifts and to use them for one another? Go on to chapter 14. He kind of wraps all that up. And right in the middle of it, this is what he says about love. Chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, beginning verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and then have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part 
then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The world will know you're his disciple. The world will know I am his disciple. Not by our, the expression of our spiritual gifts, not by any necessarily great work that we may do or any miraculous thing that he might allow us to achieve. They will not know us as his disciples by the stickers and the emblems on our car. It's not wrong, but they're not going to know us by that. They will know us by his, our love for one another and that we love one another as he loved them. All the rest of the one another's of Scripture hinge on this one. Let's ask the Lord to help make sure that we get this right daily. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.